way. Okay, so uh, last week during service, Rachel Hodes, who I believe is a prophet, she came to me and she gave me this word and said, the Chiefs will win the Super Bowl and revival will break out. And, and I didn't have enough faith to read it. Uh, not, not, the, not the revival part. I believed that 100%, but I didn't know about the, I didn't know about the, I've been a fan my whole life, and I just thought, I don't know. <laughs> and so, so I didn't have faith, but, but uh, you know, that happened, and she didn't know this, but Bob Jones, however many, how many of you heard of Bob Jones? Bob Jones was a prophet that was involved in the, you know, the Kansas City prophets. He helped found the International House of Prayer over there. And he apparently prophesied this, that, that when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, it would be a sign that God was going to raise up spiritual chiefs and that, that would, revival would sweep America. Now, now, look, that doesn't mean that God made the Chiefs win the Super Bowl. That, the, the point is that, that sometimes God uses natural events as signposts about, about what he's, what's going on. Now, I have some thoughts about the theology of all that, and I'm going to talk about some of that next week, all right? But what I wanted to do today is just talk to you a little bit about revival and what it is and, and what, what, it mean, what it looks like to have personal revival, and uh, then I'll just, I'm going to try to keep it a little short, and then I'm going to pray for people. Is that all right? So Josh thinks it's all right. So <laughs> you don't want to miss it. On March third, I'm going to be gone, and Josh is going to minister. Pastor Josh will minister, and so it'll be really good. Or what? March eighth. Is that not what I said? Oh, March eighth. Anyway, just come every Sunday. <laughs> revival is charismatic shorthand for unique points in history where the activity of God appears to be particularly concentrated and generates powerful effects. There are lots of different revivals throughout history. There's lots of different times when it seems like God is doing something unique and profound and uh, touching large amounts of people. And in significant ways. I'm going to try to talk a little bit about why I think that happens next week. Um, a lot of times, I think people have an overly um, sovereign view of that. Like, I, I, don't, I think, I don't believe God unilaterally controls people. I, I've been teaching that for weeks. So, I don't believe that revival is a unilateral thing that God does. I believe it happens in relationship, in agreement with people. I think the main thing that keeps revival from happening is not God sitting in heaven with His arms crossed. It's mostly our own hard hearts. So I don't think we need to convince God to do anything, but I'm excited because I believe that... I, I, I think we're in the greatest... This isn't really even my opinion. I, I think if you just look at the statistics, we're in the greatest period of Christian history. There are more people being saved and healed and touched by God than at any time in, in human history. And I believe we're, we're here for such a time as this. 
revivals occur for a, ver- a variety of reasons, but they always begin with somebody or a group of people experiencing something powerful in God, which changes them in some way, and then it results in them affecting people around them. How many of you would like to, you're not satisfied with where you're at, you know that there's more, that God, look, we've, we've, all, we've all hopefully experienced certain things in God, but I'm here to tell you that there's more to experience. And if I realize that, that I haven't exhausted God's grace and I haven't exhausted all the things that there are to experience in the Lord, then I can, I can receive not more of God, because God already fully indwells me, but I can receive more experiences with Him, which then catapult me to change, maybe not the whole world, maybe the whole world, but at least my whole world. I want revival for me personally, but for my family. I want to have an effect on this city. That's one of the reasons we started this church. I want to, I want to affect Kansas City, and I want to be part of the revival that's going on here. But most importantly, I want, to, I want to have a personal relationship with Jesus in such a way that it affects my own personal family. I want to raise my kids in an environment, in a situation where it's normal for them to, to hear God and to relate to God personally and feel connected to Him. I want to take you on a really brief journey through 2,000 years of church history. This is a major, major oversimplification because we are doing 2,000 years in 10 minutes. But what I'm hoping to do is show you a pattern in history that can be repeated if we can understand what's, what's going on. I want to ask you just for a moment to set aside whatever it is, whatever you're, you're background in church and whatever theological box you have, let's just pretend for a moment, just for right now, let's just pretend for a moment that we didn't have any of that and that we just didn't have any of these boxes and different theological terms and and all this. And let's just look back at what happened in history. Can we all do that for a minute? Okay. Now, look, I can show you the theology of all this in the Scripture, but I don't have time to do both, so I I just got to tell you the history right now. Is that okay? So there's not a lot of Scripture this morning, but, but I, just, just bear with me, all right? Because I'm trying to leave time so I can pray for you. So after, three, and, and so Constantine becomes emperor in the early 300s. In about 325, he issues this thing called the Edict of Milan. People get confused about that, and they say Constantine made Christianity Rome's official religion. That's not accurate. Uh, he made Christianity legal. Later, in 385, this guy Theodosius I, he issued a different edict, the one called the Edict of Thessalonica, and that made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, here's the thing that's, that's really interesting about that, is after that point, if you're like so if you're born in America, you're automatically an American citizen. Everybody understands that, right? Well, when you were born in Rome during that time, you were an American citizen, but the national religion was Christianity. So after you're born, they baptize you as a baby, and you're not just a Roman, you're a Christian. 
because the church and state fused. And so now I know that we want Christians to be involved in, in the government. I'm, I'm all for that. But I'm, I, I'm happy that the church and state separated in the sense that there's no longer in America a state-sponsored church. In other words, I don't think the government should tell you what to believe. I think you should get to choose what you believe. And the whole point of Christianity is that you get to choose Jesus. So if the government makes you a Christian, then I don't know how that really works. But for, here's the amazing thing. For like a thousand years, if you would ask most people, are you a Christian? They would say, yes, I was baptized as a baby. So for about a thousand years, there's very little conception of what we would think about as a conversion experience where you give your life to Jesus. There, this wasn't taught. People weren't taught you need to be born again. And if you were raised in a Catholic environment, you know that that's still the reality. They don't teach you to get born again because that's not what their theology says. D does that make sense? So why do they think that? Well, because, they, because at infant baptism, that's when you become part of the, the family of God. So that doesn't mean, I know that raises a bunch of questions. I don't think that means that nobody was saved or anything like that because I think God deals with us according to the light that we have. But it's, what it means is that, that for a thousand years, having a personal conversion experience was not something that was emphasized. Therefore, not very many people had one. Some people did, but not very many. Everybody with me? I mean, think about that. Now, I mean, I know most of you probably grew up and or had, how many of you can remember your conversion experience? You remember putting faith in, in Jesus, okay? So that's like normal now, but you understand for a thousand years that was not normative. Well, in 1500, the Reformation happened and they started to realize that justification, getting right with God, it doesn't happen because of a bunch of religious rituals. It happens simply because you trust Jesus. Thank God. But what that means is that there's a point in your life when you trust Jesus. You don't just become a Christian as a baby. You, you make a decision to follow the Lord. And when you make that decision, we say that's when you become a Christian. So this, the theology shifted and it made space for this new experience in God. Now, it wasn't a new experience. People have been having this forever. But the theology made room for it. Does that make sense? If your theology won't make room for something, it's hard to experience it. Then a little later, there was a man named John Wesley. Who's heard of John Wesley? He was... He was the father of the Methodist movement uh, in, the, in the Great Awakening. He ministered mostly in Europe. He did come over here some, but didn't have as much success. Uh, he was a contemporary of George Whitfield, who was a major minister over here. And Wesley, if you read his journal, it's really fascinating. He struggled initially for a long time wondering whether or not he was saved, and he wasn't sure that he had faith. And he was a minister. He was going around preaching to other people, put faith in Jesus, trust Jesus. But he, he himself wasn't sure that he was actually a Christian. And one of the things that really shook him was he came over to America on a boat, 
And there was a terrible storm, and it broke the main mast, and he thought he was going to die, and he was panicking. Anybody ever feel like panicking in the middle of the storm, all right? And he's, he's freaking out. But there were these other guys on the ship called, Moro- they were these Moravian missionaries. Uh, now, the, the Mora- there was a Moravian revival on this guy, Count Zinzendorf's land, and, and uh, they had a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week prayer meeting for 100 years. And they started the uh, first-ever large-scale Protestant missions movement. Significant, significant thing happened. And so some of these missionaries were on this boat with John Wesley. And you know what? They weren't panicked. They were like singing songs and worshiping Jesus. They were like Jesus, you know, he was asleep. <laughs> the disciples are like, we're going to die. And Jesus is asleep, you know, he's just not stressed by the stuff that stresses us. And uh, Wesley goes to these guys and he's like, how come you guys aren't stressed out? And they said, well, we believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? And John's like, I think. Apparently, I don't believe like you believe. And he was really shaken by this experience. And they said, do you believe Jesus is the Savior of the world? Or do you believe Jesus is your Savior? And he says, I believe Jesus is the Savior of the world. And, and he, they, But do you believe He's your Savior? And he says, I do. But then he records later in his journal, and he says, but I feared they were vain words. Well, he was shaken by this. Well, later, he goes to a Moravian meeting, and the guy's preaching justification by faith, which Wesley preached, but all of a sudden, he had this experience, and this is what he says. He says, while this minister was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. After this point, John Wesley never again questioned his salvation. And he began preaching all over the country. And he saw thousands of people give their lives to Jesus. He saw all kinds of charismatic phenomena, things we would talk about. He saw people healed, people be, you know, fall out in the spirit, people uh, laugh and cry in his meetings. He, he kind of got disturbed by this because he wasn't really a, uh, like a real emotional preacher, but people were real emotional at his meetings. It was the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, it was amazing, this stuff that he saw after this encounter. Well, now here's the question. What, what experience was this? Is that when he got born again? Is that when he got baptized in the Holy Spirit? What was that? Here's the thing. I think what we try to do is take people's experiences and make them fit into our neat theological box. If you were to ask John Wesley what happened, he would just probably tell you, well, that was the time that I felt assured that I was saved. He had an encounter with God that made him assured that he was a Christian. Do you know that for thousands, of, for about a thousand years... And even Luther, even though Luther was a Protestant, Luther didn't think you could have that kind of experience. He thought all your life you were, you were just going to be stressed about it. And he just told people, just look at the cross. That's all you can do. You're not ever going to feel assured, but just look at the cross. Well, Wesley had a different experience. And after that, his experience has become pretty normative in evangelical churches where we have a conversion experience and then we feel assured. 
Now, why does that happen? Well, First John says that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, in my opinion, he was probably saved long before this, but he had an encounter with the Holy Spirit that shifted something on the inside of him, and then he felt assurance. You can have that kind of experience if your theology will make room for it. Well, then later, Wesley developed a belief in a second work of grace. Now, depending on what camp you're from, that might mean something different to whoever, but for Wesley... It meant that God could do something supernaturally in your heart where He would take away sinful desires. Anybody ever heard a testimony where God touched somebody in a way and then they quit wanting to do something sinful? I mean, they quit, they quit wanting to drink or smoke or chew or run with those that do or whatever, you know, or whatever. All right, now, here's the thing. Have you ever noticed that sometimes people get saved and that kind of experience happens at the same time? But then other times, it seems like it happens later. Why is that? Because everybody's experience is not going to conform to a neat theological box because we're all different. And I'm not overly concerned about what you call these different things. I'm just concerned that we have them. So, I believe you can have an encounter with the Holy Spirit, and you can feel assured of your salvation. Some people need to have that because they question it, like Wesley. I also believe you can have encounters with the Holy Spirit, and you can be immediately set free from sinful desires. Now, sometimes people spend years fighting a sinful desire, and they have to go through a process. If you have to do that, no problem. Does God love you? Yeah, we're all different, so it's not, it's not a problem, but believe God's... So sometimes, you know, my favorite is, is when the miracle happens instantly, but if there's a process, God's with us in the process, and then we just, we just go on, all right? Now, what's interesting is that even though... So Wesley called this second work of grace sanctification, but his friend and contemporary called it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit because people have to speak in tongues for that. <laughs> All right, now, why do, you think, why do you think that? You think that because of the Azusa Street Revival that happened in 1906. And so, uh, here's an interesting thing. People have spoken in tongues throughout all of church history, but a lot of Christian theology did not make space for it until Azusa, because a lot of Christian theology said either the gifts of the Spirit died or they're not used very often. You've got to be a really holy person or something. Um, our Catholic brothers and sisters have always believed in miracles, but they, they kind of got legalistic about it and thought you had to be like a super saint to see something happen. But then a lot of the Protestant churches said, well, no, there aren't any, any miracles anymore. There aren't any super supernatural phenomena. So anyway, at Azusa, there were um, amazing phenomena that happened. It was a revival, and, uh, and the roots of it, it, I've told this story before, but it actually, it actually started in a prayer meeting over here in Topeka, Kansas. And um, there was a lady there that, that got filled with the Holy Spirit, and she spoke Chinese, and then she wrote in Chinese when she tried to write in English. It was a remarkable phenomena. So then, uh, anyway, so this Azusa Street Revival happened, and like they had, they had 
visible like fire coming out of the building and they, they called the fire department and came there. And they, this went on for about 10 years and there were, there were all kinds of things that happened. But, but here's the thing, revival, a lot of times it has some supernatural phenomena that accompany it, all right? And sometimes people don't like those phenomena and that's why they don't like revival. But you'll know revival by its fruit. And out of Azusa came the largest missionary movement in human history. And there are millions and millions of people that have given their lives to Jesus as a result of missionaries that came out of the Azusa Street Revival. It's similar to what happened with the Moravians. Um, the Moravians didn't speak in tongues, but they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they went out and, and did a bunch of stuff. But what shifted at Azusa was that uh, there's now major denominations that have a theology that says, says you can speak in tongues if you want to. So we're, we're one of those churches, and I speak in tongues. I, you can too if you want to. You don't have to. God loves you whether you do it or not, okay? God loves you whether you're, you feel assured of your salvation or not. But I would encourage you to have that experience because these things help you. So that was a, that was a thing that happened, and now there's, there's space in people's theology for people to, to speak in tongues and have that experience. Well, then later, in 1994, the Toronto Revival happened. And a major figure in that was Dr. Randy Clark. And he still is a major um, person in that, in that movement. And that thing, you know, there's a bunch of incarnations going on, but there's uh, the SEND conference. Anybody heard of that? No, nobody's... Uh, the send, so it's like Lou Engel and um, who else is in charge of that, Josh? And, well, a bunch. Todd White's involved in it, and Daniel Colinda, and yeah. No, the send, S-E-N-D, not the send. What? We're not going to a send conference. I mean, what? Sorry, S-E-N-D, send, send. Anyway, so. This this was a big this was a big uh, they had a big one of these in Florida. Tyler went right. Where was it in Florida? O Orlando, Orlando. They had some seventy thousand young people there, whatever. But it's a revival movement. They're coming to Arrowhead in October. So I think it what? Yeah, they're in Brazil right now. Doctor Clark's down there and stuff. But but anyway. What's all that mean? Well, the, so the, the unique thing about Toronto and some of the stuff after is, is they begin to recognize that the people that were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 were also filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 4. And so what this means, basically, is Ephesians 5.18 says that you're to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. You're meant to have ongoing encounters with the Holy Spirit. All that means is, is that, that there's always something more to experience in God. And, and Randy uh, prays for people that have impartation, and so people have experiences through his ministry with the Holy Spirit, and afterwards, they see more spiritual gifts happen in their lives. How many of you think that's cool? I mean, I see more people healed and stuff after, after having him pray for them. I've had that personally happen to me as well, which I'll talk about. So what's all this tell us? It tells us there's been a wide variety of views about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We went from believing that people are Christians at, 
at baptism as infants to believing they could have a conversion experience, to believing there's a sanctification experience beyond that, to believing you can speak in tongues beyond that, walk in spiritual gifts, and then to believe that there's more things, you know, being empowered to walk in the Christian life. So what I, what I hope this shows you is that throughout history, there have been theological limitations on what God can do in people's lives. And that's restricted what's happened because we want it to fit into our box. Now, it always needs to fit inside the Scripture. God doesn't do anything unscriptural, but He can violate your understanding of Scripture. And what I try to do is, is I I'm, I'm believe that you can have as many encounters with the Holy Spirit as necessary to be conformed to the image of Christ. So the Pentecostals say there's one baptism in the Holy Spirit and many fillings. Sure. I don't care about the terminology. I just care that we keep experiencing God. I want to I know more of the Lord. So here's my own personal experience, all right? And I'll just tell you how it doesn't always conform to the boxes. I don't recall being converted. I don't know when I was born again. I know that I was. But I think it was when I was so little that I don't, I don't remember it. I can remember praying the sinner's prayer several times, but I, don't, I think I was a Christian before that. I was really probably more like our Catholic brothers and sisters. I grew up a Christian. I just always remember believing in Jesus. Now, there was a point, I know, when I put faith in Jesus. Um, I also didn't have a dramatic called-to-the-ministry experience. So a lot of times a minister will say, I went to youth camp, and then the, the heavens parted, and a thundering voice from heaven said, you are called to the ministry, and then I went forward and I wept for an hour, and that's how I know. And I love stories like that. I'm not making fun of them at all. I, I love it, but that's not my experience, and for a long time I felt bad about it. And because, you know, at Bible college, one of the ministers was like, you have to have a profound call experience. And I'm like, they're like, you got to know. For me, it wasn't like that. It was more like waking up to a reality that this is who I was. And this is who I was created to be. So I say that, to just don't feel stressed if your, your experience doesn't fully conform to some kind of, it doesn't matter. You don't need my personal experiences, you need your own personal history with God. I tell you about mine because I, I know mine, and if you hear what somebody else has experienced, that is an invitation for you to experience it, because God doesn't play favorites. Well, then when I was around 12, I began to have frequent experiences similar to Wesley's where my heart would feel strangely warm during church service. And these were not what I would consider, you know, Holy Spirit church services, but I would listen to the minister and my heart would burn and I would think, I need to preach. And I had no idea what that meant and I had nothing to preach or, you know, I mean, I was like, believe in Jesus. I had a lot of zeal and not a lot of wisdom, but... 
But what I would now say is that I was, I was quote-unquote, feeling the anointing, which is just charismatic terminology for saying I was sensing the Lord's presence and moving on my heart. Well, then when I was 15, I, I ran into this, this is a long story, but I met this minister, and he told me how he prayed in tongues, and I didn't know anything against it. I was like, well, that sounds cool. I was 15, you know, nobody told me it was from the devil or whatever, and so I just... I just said to God, that sounds cool, I'd like to do that. And then nothing happened, and so then I forgot about it. But then like three months later, I was praying at my bed, and I was praying in English, I was kneeling at my bed, praying in English, and all of a sudden I started to pray in tongues. I'd never heard anybody pray in tongues, I had no idea if I was doing it right, I thought later that I probably wasn't, because I didn't sound like other people, but, but nevertheless it was a genuine experience. I didn't feel anything. I didn't fall over. I didn't shake, rattle, and roll. I didn't cry. I just started to speak in tongues. All right, now, if you shake, rattle, and roll and speak in tongues and whatever, then that's great. But there's just, there's different experiences. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. When I was about 23 or 24, I had, I think, maybe the most significant encounter with God that I've had in my life, but it was the most it was the least dramatic outwardly. It wasn't that something was going on physically or that I was weeping or crying. I was, I was literally sitting on my couch next to my wife, and I listened to a man named Andrew Womack explain righteousness and justification by faith in a way that I never had before. And suddenly I understood that there was nothing that could ever again separate me from, from fellowship with my father. And suddenly, everything I wanted to do as a Christian became possible because it was no longer about me and my works. It was about Jesus. And still today, I'm running in the strength of that revelation. That, I believe that was a filling or a baptism of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, I don't agree. Well, I don't care what you call it. But, but do you know the Bible says that, that the Holy Spirit will fill you with wisdom and revelation. In Ephesians 1, does it say that? So I believe the Holy Spirit gave me a real revelation of righteousness in that moment. That changed my life. It wasn't outwardly dramatic, but it was very, very significant. Then, when I was in Bible college in my third year, I was reading about how there were more things I could experience and reading about impartation and spiritual gifts. And I was spending hours a day on the phones praying for people. And I was like, I need somebody to pray for me <laughs> that I'll see more people healed and stuff. And I was like, I need impartation. And I was praying that. And then like a week later, Jerry Garcia, who's coming here in a few weeks, he showed up. At, at my at Bible college, and one of the first things he said was, I'm not here to teach you, I'm here for impartation. And he proceeded to have some really wild, charismatic meetings. And in those meetings, I did shake, rattle, and roll, and lay on the ground and act generally like a crazy person. And so, you know, what's the benefit of all that? Well, after that, I started to see a lot more supernatural stuff happen in my ministry. More people healed and more people touched by God and things like that. And so, so the point isn't to have some weird manifestation or whatever, but if that helps, great. Then uh, a couple years ago, I was at a Randy Clark meeting and I had the most dramatic 
outward encounter that I've had with the Holy Spirit to date. It lasted for several hours. I felt like I was being electrocuted. Um, it was really amazing. And, you know, I just, I, I, it still kind of messes me up to think about it. But, um, so Pastor, what's, what's the point of all that? Listen, do you know that I don't need an excuse? <laughs> Josh is making it hard for me to focus. All right. Do you, do you, know, do you know that I don't need an excuse to kiss my wife? God is a good father. He doesn't need an excuse to kiss his kids. If you need, if you need some kind of experience with God and encounter with Jesus, he'll give it to you. And, it, and sometimes it's just for you to enjoy and feel loved. So let's finish this. I'm going to pray for people. Letter A, forcing people, excuse me, forcing spiritual experiences to fit inside boxes limits what God can do. As I said, we always want to re- remain within the bounds of Scripture. So, you know, in, in church history, but none of the things, none of the things that are going on in revival now, you know, people have been speaking in tongues since, since Acts, people have been falling over in the Spirit, people have been having all these different things, laughing and stuff for 2,000 years, all right? Uh, so all that's normative. Um, you don't need my exact experiences, you just need your own personal history with the Lord. Letter B, there's always more for us to experience. So I don't know what you need. I I don't know what you need to move to a deeper level of connection with God. My experience shows you sometimes you need somebody to pray for you. Sometimes you need to sit on your couch and listen to good teaching. Sometimes you might need to laugh a little bit and have your emotions healed. Sometimes you might need to cry a little bit and have your emotions healed. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sometimes you might need to kneel at your bed and pray to God. Whatever the reality is, though, there's always more. Ephesians 5.18 says you to be, be being filled. Be always in the process of being filled. Revival is about saying, I'm, I'm not satisfied. I'm thankful. We're always thankful. I'm thankful for what God has done in my life. But I know that God has more for me, and I want deeper connection with Him. I want to see the lives of people around me changed. I want to see more people come to Jesus. I want to see more people healed physically. And there's, there's anointing available for these things to happen. And so we're going to pray. And I'm going to pray, and if Skyler's cut, he heard God, I'm going to pray. Now, look, we're not trying to force you to have any kind of, if you've never seen any service like this or whatever, just, just know Jesus loves you. We're not trying to be weird for the sake of being weird or anything. We just, we love God. And we want to run after God with our whole heart. And if God has it, I want it. I've seen a lot of stuff, but I'm still, I'm still, Paul said in Philippians, it's towards the end of his life, that he counts everything as loss compared to the knowledge of God. 
And when he says knowledge, he's not talking about some academic head knowledge where you sit in the ivory tower. He's talking about experiencing God. So there's more available. So let's all stand up. I'm going to pray for everybody. And I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit will give you what you need. Maybe you just need to hear something. Maybe you need to be touched by God. I don't know. I'm going to pray for everybody.